Hello and welcome to EndNotes, a WooCast production. In this series, we take you behind the cover and through the pages of books on politics, policy, and more, all written by faculty at Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School. I'm Rose Huber, and today we have two very special guests, Anne Case and Sir Angus Deaton, with whom I've worked quite a great deal with in my time at Princeton. Today, we're going to talk about their new book, Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism, published by the Princeton University Press. This is a groundbreaking account of how the flaws in capitalism are fatal for America's working class. So before we get into questions, we need to go back to 2015. This is the year that Anne and Angus stumbled upon something truly remarkable. For the first time since 1918, life expectancy in the United States was beginning to fall. The cause? Deaths related to suicide, drug overdoses, and alcoholism, which they called deaths of despair. So let's begin our discussion there with this term, which we're now hearing quite a bit in the news. Can you give us a definition of deaths of despair? We're talking about drug overdose, alcoholic liver disease and cirrhosis, and suicide. So we see them all as being um, uh, forms of death which call, which recall a lot of despair. Um, generally, we use them together because for a medical examiner or, um, or for the coroner, they, they may not know whether or not someone was intentionally trying to kill themselves. But we put these together because we see them as going together as a group. And um, that's how we use the terms. And it's been a very good hook for us because it has the term despair in there and people don't usually object if you say suicide, alcohol, alcoholism, and um, um, drugs. drugs are things that you're only going to die from if you're in really, really bad shape. And then the despair allows us to link it back to the social and economic phenomena that we think. You know, how did it all start? Well, I was writing a paper about suicide. Um, and Anne, who's been suffering from lower back pain for a very long time, was working on and thinking about pain. So we're at the other side of the, uh, either side of the room, one <laughs> thinking about pain and one thinking about suicide. Um, and then at some point, um, when we more or less finished, um, we more or less accidentally linked the two things together because we discovered that um, not only were suicides rising in the group we were looking at, which was white, middle-aged, non-Hispanics in America. Um, but so were other deaths. And that's a very, very strange phenomenon. And so that was when we knew we'd either made a terrible mistake or we'd stumbled on something. And we had not made a terrible mistake. And we'd stumbled on something which seemed to have been just missed, which is pretty extraordinary. So why don't you take us back a bit to where you were when you made this discovery? Because this is now a book, but it began as a research paper. Where was the world at at that time? The, the fall in which uh, this paper, the, our first paper on this came out, um, we, um, we had clearly hit a nerve. It was the beginning of the last um, ele um, presidential electoral cycle and we think that part of the reason it hit a nerve was because people were wondering 
Does this help to explain what we're seeing in, in politics as well? So life expectancy is, as the name suggests, on average how many years one could, could expect to live if they face the mortality rates at every age that are currently in place. A, a baby would expect. A baby would expect. So a baby born, if that baby experienced, had the risks that the current population faces, how many years on average would they be expected to live? Um, it's very hard to move the needle on life expectancy with a change in mortality rates in midlife. Uh, uh, children's mortality can make life expectancy go up or down by quite a lot. But in midlife, the idea that uh, uh, what was happening in midlife was significant enough that life expectancy could drop for three years running in the U.S. is really quite extraordinary especially when mortality rates for children are still falling, mortality rates for the elderly are still falling. So this was a really big, big change. You know, I wrote a whole book called The Great Escape, about half of which was about the inexorable increase in life expectancy. And You know, there have been a few blips over the last 250 years, but it's been one of the big stories of progress. And in the U.S., the, there hasn't been a fall in life expectancy at birth um, since the end of the First World War during three the years. of three sorry there hasn't been a fall for three consecutive years um, since the um, influenza epidemic at the end of World War One, which was just an enormous catastrophe. Something like this is pretty extraordinary. I mean, the the fall is not very large, and um, you know it's just a fraction of a year. But what you have to compare it with was what we've been expecting for a long time, which is, you know, every decade life expectancy has been going up by two or three years. And so it just seemed like we were creeping up on immortality. And this is sort of the opposite of that. And in fact, uh, for people in midlife, the 20th century was a, a century of amazing health progress. So for just to give an age group for 45 to 54 year olds, Mortality rates in the U.S. declined 2% a year on average through the 20th century. And in countries that look like the United States, other English-speaking countries and rich countries in Europe, that kind of progress is continuing. So it was a great surprise to us that in the last years of the 20th century, progress in the U.S. just stopped cold. And in some years, mortality rates actually started to go the wrong way. Yeah, if you save the life of a baby who would otherwise have died, you add about another 80 years to the total stock of lives that are years, lives that are going to be lived. You save a guy like me, you know, just a few more years, it doesn't have much effect. So these midlife things don't change life expectancy by very much, but that they would change it at all is pretty amazing. So let's talk about who exactly this is affecting, because there's been this narrative of those living in rural pockets of America. What does your research show? And can you get into the difference between those who have bachelor's degrees and those without? It's not at all evenly distributed across the United States. Um, there's been a lot of talk in the press about the spatial side of this, the geography. We haven't found that as important. There are certainly some places where it's much worse than other places. Um, but it's really happening everywhere, maybe with a few exceptions, like the upper Midwest um, seems to have been relatively free 
um, of this. But the big divide we found, and it's the, this is the divide that you know marks the whole book and runs throughout the whole book, is between people who have a bachelor's degree or more, and people who do not have a bachelor's degree. And you know, the, the world for the people without a bachelor's degree has sort of really been coming apart in lots of dimensions. I want to come back to that, but uh, just to pick up on the geography for a minute. The press has made this a story about what's going on in rural America. And certainly it's happening in rural America. But it's also happening in, in the center cities. It's happening in the suburbs. Um, at every level of urbanization, we've seen increases in deaths of despair. Um, we think of it as sort of a pick your poison kind of phenomenon, though, where in some parts of the country, drug overdoses are the biggest part of the story, and in other parts of the country, alcoholic liver disease is a bigger part of the story. Utah, for example, where two-thirds of the people belong to the Church of Jesus Christ and the Latter-day Saints, don't drink. So alcoholic liver disease is not a very big problem in Utah, although drug overdose and suicide rates have been sky high. Whereas in Mississippi, um, alcoholic liver disease is taking more people than are drug overdoses. The big divide here is by educational attainment. That doesn't mean that it's education that's causing these things, but education which is which is actually put on people's death records, unlike income or occupation, which don't appear on the death records. Education is a very big marker, not only of mortality from these, from these deaths of despair, but also among um, uh, people throughout midlife, there have been increases in pain, increases in serious mental distress, increases in social isolation. All of those things are risk factors for suicide. They're not affecting people with a bachelor's degree, but for people without a bachelor's degree, year on year there have been increases in these risk factors going back as far as the uh, mid-1990s at least. Certainly it's been a long-term trend. I mean, if you look at um, you know, how long has it been going on for, the deaths really begin to pick up in the late 90s. And it's tempting to pin them on, you know, OxyContin was approved about that time. But there were things like Vicodin who, that had been there for a long time before that and did not cause any of this. But the economic and social distress has been just unwinding for a really, really, really long time. So that if you look at people without a BA and you look at their wage profiles over their lives, each successive birth cohort has got a lower profile than the one before. So it's just been eating away at that. And you know, those lower wages have largely come with some people dropping out of the labor force altogether. There, there are fewer and fewer jobs for people who are less educated. Um, some of those people just decide, okay, it's not worth it. I'm not gonna be in the labor force at all anymore. And some of them accept jobs, for instance, in outsourcing firms or in Amazon warehouses or something, which really are jobs that it's very hard to make a good life well, you know, on that subject of a, quote, good life, isn't that part of the story here as well? I mean, what do you think makes a good life? And is that part of what's missing here? We think the pillars that help people hold their lives together are a job with meaning, having a family, having children that you help to raise, um, 
the institution of, of organized religion has been extraordinarily important in America in a way that has not been true in Europe. But that institution also we're seeing um, dissolve for people with less than a bachelor's degree. But not so much for people with a, with a BA. It, it turns out the Pew ran a survey a couple of years ago looking specifically at the white working class. And for young, meaning 18 to 29 year old white working class people, half of them said that they affiliated with no church whatsoever. So all of the things that used to hold life together and give life meaning, work, family, religion, uh, participation in the community, those things have pretty much disappeared um, for uh, the white working class. They're being very heavily reduced. Your work talks a lot about pain and the link to prescription painkillers and opioids. Can we delve into that a bit more? Um, let's talk about how the healthcare industry is influencing all of this. We, we think of pain as being one of the, one of the forces that, that weaves all the way through the book we've written. Um, we know that pain is a, is a predictive factor for suicide. But it's ironic that pain has been increasing at the same time that uh, there was a period around 2012 when enough prescription painkillers were being prescribed so that every adult would, in America would have a month's supply. So the irony that the pain levels that are being reported in these nationally representative surveys year on year are going up while the prescription opioids are going up as well uh, seems pretty remarkable. Um, we know from, uh, we've, we've dug into this a bit and the, the neuropsychologists have done work putting people into scanners. And it turns out that the same part of the brain lights up if you socially isolate someone when you're playing a game in the scanner and you stop throwing the ball to them and they feel isolated. The same part of the brain lights up as lights up if you, if you physically hurt them and cause them physical pain. So we think of this as being um, one of the markers for us that all is not well. And that is something also that's only happened for people on average without a BA. So one story would be that for reasons we don't understand, there's this huge upsurge in pain, caused some doctors at least to think maybe we can deal with this with opioids, which for many generations they'd really thought we shouldn't do this. And so there was a movement, of course, you know, egged on by the pharma companies, to say, let's use more opioids um, for pain. And a lot of it was well-meaning. A lot of it was sort of a bit foolish. People said, well, you know, I work in a terminal cancer clinic, and we give people opioids all the time, and none of them ever got addicted. Well, they're not addicted because they're dead, right? But, you know, there was an extension from that. And there, so this monster got released into the population, largely because, or the pain had a lot to do with that. Healthcare in the U.S. is the most expensive in the world, and it delivers the worst health of any rich country. So uh, we spend 18% of GDP on healthcare. The next most expensive country is Switzerland. People in Switzerland live five years longer on average than people in America, 
But if we went from our 18% to their 12.6%, the savings there would be a trillion dollars. There's a lot one could do with that money. In fact, a trillion dollars is one and a half times what we spend on our military. But we think that we have a cancer in the labor market, which is eating the economy from the inside out, which is the healthcare system. Well, one of the big misconceptions about the true cost of healthcare is that people keep like to say, we have the best healthcare system in the world. <laughs> you know. And they say that over and over again, but I don't know what the data are for that. And then when you ask them, they say, but people come from all over the world to have health care in New York or something. Well, they do, but they're coming from Saudi Arabia or Tanzania or something, you know, where, and, you know, the, the data in terms of, and it's probably true that in some specialities, um, you know, it may be we're top in this, top in that, but overall, it's just not serving the population very well. So that's a huge misconception. The other misconception, I think, is that it's all worth it somehow, you know, either because we have the best healthcare system in the world, or there's a huge story about how much it costs to innovate on drugs. And there's some truth to that. It's not a huge part of the total cost. Um, and also, I don't know whether this is, whether we say this in the book, but there's a lot of skepticism about whether that's the only way that you can develop these drugs. Um, a lot of them are actually developed in NIH and then licensed to firms who then make a lot of money out of them. Um, so I think we could do a lot better with that money. Is anything being done to control or stop the opioid epidemic? So one, one that's already being implemented in the U.S. is to try to stop, turn off the taps to prescription opioids to the extent that they are currently being offered. In prescription opioids end up in people's medicine cabinets and then they happen to disappear um, and end up in on the street for sale and um, I think doctors now understand better what the risks are of prescribing um, heavy-duty opioids but unfortunately now that the genie is out of the bottle Prescription opioids, especially ox things like Oxycontin, have a perfect substitute, which is heroin. And people turn from prescription drugs to heroin, which is cheaper, and the black tar heroin coming in from Mexico is quite pure. And uh, that ha put us at risk as well of having a secondary drug epidemic caused by the arrival then of uh, heroin and later fentanyl on the streets. Um, I think we won't find uh, a real cure for these deaths of despair unless we find a way to rein in the costs of the U.S. healthcare system. We believe a strategy is going to have to have two components to it. First of all, everyone has to be inside the tent, everyone has to be covered. Um, and second, there has have to be cost controls. Without those two bits to it, the healthcare um, industry will continue to grow and this problem is going to continue to spread. It, it's very hard to be optimistic about solutions in the short run, if only because of the enormous financial power and lobbying power and political power of the healthcare industry. Do you have some examples of that kind of power of the healthcare system? When insulin was developed, the three guys who developed it 
sold it to the University of Toronto for a dollar each because they wanted to make sure that anyone who needed it for diabetes would always have it available. Well, now what people have to pay for their insulin by the month oftentimes causes them to have to make a hard decision whether or not to pay the rent or buy their insulin. How can that happen? Why does that happen? And I think people have a sense that, of this being extremely unfair. You know, it is an election year and healthcare is very much top of mind. So how are the presidential candidates looking at healthcare? The candidates right now are, are for the most part, interested in coverage, right? The fact that there are still millions of people in the U.S. who do not have health care coverage. And that is certainly a really important problem. But they, we think that they need to be refocused on costs because the costs affect all of us and the costs are bringing down the economy as a whole. But we would be remiss if we didn't ask how Princeton has shaped all of this work. And you've been here quite a while. So how has Princeton influenced what you've done? So uh, both Angus and I um, spent our careers uh, with joint appointments in the economics department and the Woodrow Wilson School. And I think for both of us, our research has been nourished by both groups. There's a real rigor in uh, economic analysis, but there's a real richness and having colleagues who study problems as sociologists or historians or psychologists. And they have offered us um, a way of thinking about problems that's just larger than uh, taking a very narrow view of them. And that's been enormously important. Yeah, and one thing about Princeton that's been really important to us was the foundation, I think 20 years ago, of the Center for Health and Wellbeing. Um, within the Woodrow Wilson School. And, um, you know, it, it gave us a place where we could talk to other people who were interested in health. There's no medical school here, um, which in many ways is a really good thing not to have a medical school, but it doesn't provide the steady access to doctors and people who are thinking about this all the time. And so the Center for Health and Wellbeing, which Chris Paxson was the founding director of, was really a, a terrific place where we got to talk to people, non-economists as well as economists, and um, that, that really helped us. I mean, Chris was my first co-author in health for a long time, and then Anne stole her away and wrote a whole bunch of papers with her. And then the Woodrow Wilson School stole her away, and then Brown University. So we were forced, we had to write together. There was no one left. <laughs> um, and so, but I mean, it's been a wonderful nurturing environment for that. Sort of it's, it's also the case that we've learned an enormous amount from our students. Um, this past fall, I was teaching a master's course in the Wilson School on um, health and um, economic status broadly construed. And they read through the galleys of our new book, and we discussed them in class. And that was just hugely helpful for me, as, as they have always been. They are oftentimes a real source for, for ideas and for thoughtful discussion. I think we are just about out of time, so we want to thank Anne and Angus for joining us. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning in to EndNotes, currently available on SoundCloud. This show is produced and edited by me, Rose, and recorded by our audio engineer, Dan Kearns. The graphics used for this show were produced by Egan Jimenez.
You've been listening to EndNotes, a series produced by WooCast, the podcast enterprise of Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School. The content you've just heard does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Woodrow Wilson School.